Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. You gotta have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally gonna be amazing. There are so many easy ways. So, so, so I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working at a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made it. Just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. I'm Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. Earlier this season, we tested a new format where entrepreneurs asked their most burning questions. Your response as an audience was overwhelmingly positive. What we heard back was that you found their questions as revealing as my answers. And so that's why we decided to do it again. And this time, it's a global strategy session. We partnered with Endeavor, an organization I love, which invests in entrepreneurs worldwide. For 20 years, Endeavor has helped to create ecosystems outside of Silicon Valley that support startups and scale-ups. If you haven't heard our episode with Endeavor founder Linda Rotenberg, it's worth a listen. It's called, And the Next Silicon Valley Is, and you can find it at listen.masterdoscale.com slash Endeavor. For this episode, Linda and her team connected us with their fastest-growing, high-performing entrepreneurs worldwide, a group they call their outliers. These aren't startups, but what you'd call scale-ups. Several of them have hit unicorn status. I was really intrigued by the questions I got from these global scale entrepreneurs, so I invited a guest co-host to join me and to bring some context to what we're hearing. My co-host for today is Young May Moon, a professor at Harvard Business School and host of their excellent weekly podcast, HBS After Hours. Thank you, Reed. And I'm particularly excited to be part of this strategy session. I'm just fascinated by the questions we'll be exploring. Young May spends all her time studying companies around the world and how they're adapting to the challenges of today's business environment. She wrote Harvard's case studies on companies like Starbucks, Ikea, and Uber, and authored the best-selling book called Different. Young May's analysis of the questions adds a whole different level to the show. Young May, so honored to have you join us. Thanks for having me on. You know, the business landscape is evolving so rapidly, it's forced us all to re-examine conventional wisdom about what it takes to be successful today compared to, say, five, 10 years ago. So this is a great opportunity for fresh insight. So let's get started. Reed, your first question comes from Guadalajara, Mexico. It's a question that's really tailor-made for you. It's a practical question about the kind of hyper-fast company growth that you call blitzscaling. The entrepreneur is Adalberto Flores, and he runs a direct lending company called Quesky that has distributed more than $330 million in loans. 
He's facing competition from companies that are growing quickly, but with poor unit economics. He wants your take on how he should best respond to this type of competition. So his question gets to the heart of what it means to blitz scale. Here's Adal's question. Hi, Reed. This is Alal Flores from Queski. We are a point-of-sale financing company and a direct lending company in Mexico. We're the largest online consumer lending company in Spanish-speaking Latin America. We've lent more than $330 million in loans, and we have more than 250 people working in the company, and we just raised our Series B rounds. So I read your book on bid scaling, and I have the following question. In this economy, we are starting to see a bunch of companies that are acquiring customers with very poor unit economics. And they're doing this because they promise to investors that eventually they're going to offer a different array of products that uh, are going to be making their lifetime values higher. And this is how they're going to be able to kind of like justify this type of unit economics. Now, this makes me rethink about our own growth strategy, because on one side, we want to make sure that we are growing responsibly. Uh, with healthy unit economics. But at the other side of the spectrum, we're starting to see companies that are growing very aggressively and are achieving some level of scale and might achieve some level of unit economics and network effects that might be difficult to compete in the future. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think about this type of situations, about these companies? Do you think we need to rethink about our own strategy on growth or do you think there's something we should be careful about? Thank you very much. Adal, congrats with all the success with Questkey. And this is a classic blitzscaling question. And as always, there's both art and science to the answer. What your competitors are doing is precisely the kind of blitzscaling move that's described in blitzscaling, which is we actually, in fact, you know, don't have a clear, certain path to great unit economics, profitable customers. What we have is a theory about how if we can do market expansions very quickly and deploy capital for it, we can convert that into a very highly valuable business. So we can start, just as LinkedIn started, with no revenue model, just spreading a network, and that we can then build a recruiting business on top of that. And that's the theory that was then counter to the companies of the time like Monster and other kinds, you know, Career Builder and other kinds of recruiting companies. And we kind of played that out. And so your judgment is where are any of these companies potentially doing that enough intelligently that you would neither need to respond or that you should be doing that as well? Because it's precisely this technique of saying a fast deployment of capital here to acquire these kinds of customers when we actually, in fact, have no good solid evidence that we can tune it to profitability. But sometimes the tune it is a new product line. Sometimes the tune it is the freemium growth product that is the zero margin leader into our other products. And that this is the multi-step play that blitzscaling is the first part of the strategy on. So my advice would be first look at the ones that you see blitzscaling See if you believe their theory. and doesn't have to believe their theory 100%. If you believe their theory 50%, that may be a reason to say, okay, we have to do something in this area too. 
if you believe their theory 5%, then you might take the risk and say, or 10%. You might say, well, I don't think so, but I'm going to monitor it. And if you think zero, then you know, pay attention, but, but not at all. Those are the kind of defensive blitzscaling moves that you might make. Like part of modern consumer internet strategy is if you have a customer acquisition vehicle that's essentially a, a low-cost investment or a zero-margin product, but it is an up-leader to your other very valuable products, that can be your best marketing strategy. That can be your best ecosystem development strategy. And so if you see that when you're looking at these competitors and these companies and say, oh, well, we should do that or a version of that, that's also a good question to be asking. Part of what's happening in this more and more connected the world, this hyper-connected world where you know things are more local, we have more of what we call Glengarry Glen Ross markets, where for each particular kind of product line, the rewards tend to be parallel to this movie, Glengarry Glen Ross, which is first prize Cadillac, second prize steak knives, third prize you're fired. And so in that hyper-connected world, more often, more of these products, especially software products, especially products delivered through uh, mobile, through online, through the cloud, tend to have a Glengarry Glen Ross characteristic. And so you really want to be paying attention to what's the way that we actually have the maximum global footprint of scale in doing this. Best of luck. Any answer that evokes Glengarry Glen Ross is a great answer in my book. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process. It's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Reed, our next entrepreneur has a different question about blitzscaling, one that gets to the human side of business. Her name is Hande Jillinger, and her company, which is based in Turkey, is called Insider. If the number one rule of blitzscaling is to embrace chaos, Hande wants to know, How can she support her managers who feel exhausted by the chaos? Here's Hande. As you mentioned in your podcast and also in the book of Blitzscale, you deem the number one rule of Blitzscaling to be embracing the chaos. This chaotic practices affect high and mid-level managers in a way that they feel exhausted. So it becomes hard for them to manage their psychologies. So how can we communicate them in a way that they will see that chaos of today will bring more stability in the long term? I love the way you phrase that, Hyundai. How can we communicate that the chaos of today will bring more stability in the long term? And obviously, this is a question that was very central to why I did a bunch of the work around blitzscaling, teaching the class at Stanford, writing the book, and indeed doing this podcast, Masters of Scale. 
all companies that I've worked with, whether it's LinkedIn, Airbnb, Zynga, always have a difficult time adjusting the chaos of blitzscaling. It is not new. They all do, and they all have to solve it. Part of the reason to do this work, the book, the podcast, and everything else, is to create a shared set of media that the company can discourse around. So like people say, look, we're the executive team, we're a product team, we're a development team, and we're concerned, well, actually get the book, read the book, use the book as a way of talking to each other, you know, listen to some of the podcasts, use that as a way of talking to each other. And the questions that you're asking as you're doing it, okay, which areas should we allow the chaos and which should we tamp down on it? And when do we fix that chaos? And we're making sure that people are on board with the culture of our company, how the culture of our company is evolving, because frequently, as you can hear on multiple episodes of Master of Scale, culture is not static. It's always evolving. And how are you evolving it in that direction? You're exactly right that one of the things that happens with blitzscaling is organizational confusion, organizational fatigue, uh, organizational disagreements that come about because we don't have time to get to the broad consensus and we need to move forward with some speed and frequently need to duplicate work by accident, correct work, refactor, pivot, change, and ultimately really rebuild for getting back to stability and efficiency. And all blitzscaling efforts ultimately return to what you might think is business normalcy, which is how do we tune towards efficiency in our operations, efficiency in how we serve customers, efficiency in how we get customers, efficiency in, in how we operate. And this is a speed to scale within a market, within an industry. And so the embrace chaos is not embrace all chaos. The embrace chaos is embrace the necessary chaos that allows us to just move to scale and move with speed and to recognize emotionally that we're going to have that and emotionally we're going to refactor that. But because winning is getting to that scale within these markets, within these industries, relative to competition, so that when we get to that scale, that's what the winning state is. And then we have to first move back to efficiency of operations. You know, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. And I'll conclude this answer with part of the way that you use the framework to decide that we should move from blitzscaling to efficiency is roughly speaking, when on the blitzscaling techniques that we have used, another startup or another competitor can't catch us with them. We've established it in such a way that those techniques we have a stable business against. There's always a risk against a blitzscaler from a different product line, a different company, either large one or small one, that you'll have to respond to. And then you'll have to make decisions then about whether or not you shift your footing. But that's kind of the, the raw test of should we now move from a blitzscaling configuration mindset to a efficiency mindset. Okay, this next question comes from Annabelle Perez, co-founder and CEO of Nova Payments, a financial tech company that's created a platform of banking accessories. Annabelle is a native of Venezuela, and her company is based in Miami. Their revenue is more than doubling every year, and they're about to evolve from bootstrapping 
to raising venture capital for the first time. This is a really significant inflection point. As entrepreneurs who've been through this can attest, this kind of transition is not just about the funding specifics, it's about the fundamental change in mindset required. She'd love your advice, Reed, so let's take a listen. Hello, Reed. My name is Annabel Perez. I am CEO and co-founder of Novo Payment. Since our inception, we have been self-funded and have grown organically. We are in a unique position to capitalize on our technical assets, local knowledge, and presence across nine countries. We are realizing 100% plus year-over-year growth with our monthly recurring revenue model. To fuel our aggressive scale-up strategy, we are midway through our first capital raising round, which will be used to acquire more talent, generate demand, and optimize our R&D efforts. Reed, my question is, what advice do you have for a rapidly scaling company like ours that's been bootstrapped and now raising capital for the first time to prepare for exponential growth? Thank you. Annabelle, congrats with all the success on Nova Payments, and especially congrats on having achieved such success through bootstrapping, which is really uh, challenging. So first, I would recommend you listen to our Ben Chestnut episode with MailChimp, because that was actually our specific Masters of Scale episode targeting the questions and the challenges and the, the ways of thinking around bootstrapping. Now, part of what you're going to really need to prepare for is a form of culture change. Because thus far, when you're doing bootstrapping, you're running on cash, you're making sure that you never get over your skis, even though you have great growth, you're being extremely disciplined on it, because you have an envelope that could just cause catastrophic failure. And so your whole company culture will be built up around that. Now, what you're going to have to consider is we're raising capital and we can actually spend into the red. And spending into the red will be a different cultural calculus. Now, if you're just raising capital to say we have an insurance policy, fine. That's also a good idea to do. I've done that with some of my portfolio companies. We did that with LinkedIn in the Series D. But if you're really kind of saying we're going for it, we're hitting the accelerator, what you're now going for is a sequence of capital raises. Because usually what will happen is it won't be just one capital raise. It'll be two or three. And that part of what you're doing is you're spending into that capital to change your inflection and growth rate. But then your next fundraising will become a much higher valuation with a much higher amount of capital because you've proven out of this capital that that's the path you're on and that the dilution from these fundraises is worth it for the overall increase in value, the overall increase in providing your banking accessories platform, a much broader platform, a much broader network for doing this. And that's why you would do that particular pattern. But the principal challenge will be is that that's a different game than the bootstrapping game. That's a game where you've got a North Star on what your business is going to be, but you're also thinking about what's the next financing round and what's the story of the next financing round? What are the things that I need to show that I am on path to that North Star and that there will be a variety of capital sources and a market availability of that capital in order to do? And so part of when you're 
in this kind of scaling and blitz scaling arena as you're making that North Star judgment. Because, for example, the capital markets suddenly get a lot more restricted. You might say, well, actually, in fact, even though we've raised a bunch of capital, we're going to be much closer to bootstrapping, much closer to it's an insurance policy versus growing. You're going to be on this slider where if you go all the way out to blitz scaling, you're like, we know that we need to raise another round. And we're already planning for that round in the round that we're raising because that dynamic is a super fast growth with some uncertainty that we're spending into that growth because blitz scaling is you know, prioritizing speed over efficiency in an environment of uncertainty. Therefore, you're spending inefficiently. Capital, financial capital, human capital, we're spending into that because that's the much, that's the rational strategy. That's the much greater win. And so that kind of executive decision changing, culture change is the thing you're going to need to pay the most attention to in terms of throttling up and down and whether or not you go all the way to 10 or you throttle up to six and then you're you're measuring to whether or not you go back down to four or five or you go up to eight. You know, that's the kind of decisioning and work with your executive that you'll need to do. Okay, this next question is also about bootstrapping. And by the way, this is one clue that these entrepreneurs are largely based outside the U.S. In the States, and especially in Silicon Valley, we often assume that starting a business means raising money. But outside the U.S., you're much more likely to find entrepreneurs going it alone, perhaps because they don't have connections to raise capital, perhaps because they're in an ecosystem where funding is generally less available. So Reed, the next question comes from Sergio Fogel, who has bootstrapped a payments company in Uruguay called D-Local. He's been very successful. The company's bringing in nearly $100 million in annual revenue. But now he's asking himself, are there hidden benefits to taking on investors? Hello. My name is Sergio Fogel, and I am one of the founders of D-Local. At D-Local, we help large internet companies accept payments in 20 different emerging markets, where most consumers do not have credit cards. We serve the likes of Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, and Uber. We were founded in Uruguay, and we've grown very fast and profitably over the last few years. Having started in a region where venture money is hard to get, we have always been very careful to contain costs, even if it means growing a bit more slowly. This has allowed us to maintain the same culture of frugality and energy that define us. However, now that we are a large company and approach the unicorn status, we found it hard to receive press coverage, which is important to reach more customers. It seems that if you received $100 billion in capital, you have an interesting story for the press. If, however, you earn $100 billion in profits, nobody really cares. As we expand our relationships into the executive level, it would be very helpful if they would be aware from us from multiple sources, including business media. We have the feeling that having institutional money would make it easier to sign partnerships and get more business customers. My question is, do you think that having institutional capital is important in this situation beyond the money, or is it overrated? Thank you. Sergio, congrats with all the success in D-Local. And it's amazing how you've built such a strong business without yet institutional capital. And also, by the way, I just recently, I was in December, I was in Uruguay for business on a Bitcoin gathering for 
you know, kind of figuring out things with fintech. So I'm aware of how central Uruguay is within the kind of financial systems market, both in South America and generally. And so I do think it's valuable to have institutional capital, but I think press is the wrong reason. I think press you can solve. Press you just may have to go hire the right people. And I think you're right that press people don't tend to go, look, you've got a hundred billion in profits. You know, there's a story of no one's ever heard from you and this is great, because there's a bunch of businesses that are very profitable and going, you know, the big tech companies, et cetera. Whereas when you do $100 billion in capital, usually that's the promise that you're going to have um, hundreds of billions in profits as you're going. That's the prospect in terms of where you're going and what you're doing. And that's why that's, that's a new news hook. But there's lots of ways to create the news news hook. Now, the reasons to think about taking institutional capital in addition to you know sometimes the capital is useful is that it builds the network around your company. That institution may be able to help you with – Recruiting, maybe help you with go to market, maybe able to help you with going public, maybe able to help you with strategic relationships, market entry into other geographies. If you look at within a Silicon Valley context, even though there are some companies that kind of initially bootstrap very successfully, all of the ones become huge and almost all the ones that become public ultimately end up taking some form of institutional capital because of that network connectivity. Now, it isn't just the money. The money is usually the vehicle for the economics to bring the individual, the firm, and the firm together to actually help you take the business to the next level, to be the right kind of later stage financial co-founder that you look for in an investor. It isn't like necessarily, oh, I know how to operate, but it's how I partner with operators. And I may know how to operate is a good way of partnering with operators. That's one of the ways that we do it at Greylock is to have you know people who have actually built these companies partnering on you know hiring and go-to-market and product development and strategic relationships and partnerships and new markets and all of that. But sometimes it's also just you know the right kind of partner to help you with those things. And sometimes you have specific needs like government regulatory, regional expertise, and other kinds of things. So the right institutional investor might be very valuable, but for different reasons than just press. If it's just the press thing, I would solve it differently. But there may be other reasons why I would consider institutional financiers. But that's not just the capital. That's the, I want this person, this institution working with me as I scale the business. Good luck. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my Summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. 
Okay, this next question comes from Nirmal Rajaram, who's CEO of one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in Indonesia. In less than five years, they've gone from one store to 200 stores and to $50 million in annual sales. They now have 6,000 employees and locations in 45 cities across the country. Here's how Nirmal describes their two restaurant chains. Our brands are Upnormal, which is a coffee shop, which is also serving an instant noodle. It's basically a hangar joint. And Bakso Bujangan, which is a QSR focusing on meatballs. As tasty as the meatballs might be, as Nirmal describes it, his company's real differentiator is technology. We are one of the first ones to launch order table and paid table app. We engage with Wi-Fi based technology for CRM integration. We even have data-driven supply chain management, and we also use data-driven decisions for logistics and supply chain routing. We served 18 million customers in the year of 2018 and an estimated 25 million customers in the current year. Reed, Nirmal has a few questions for you, and as you'll hear, they have to do with some fundamental tensions associated with identity, what kind of business is he in, and some fundamental challenges associated with pace. Let's take a listen. With growth and more money comes more challenges per se. People, culture, competency, infrastructure, and efficiencies. The shareholder still wants us to keep the X factor and keep us on the growth path and still expect us to stay profitable. We are a brick and mortar business, unlike any tech-based company. This in itself has multitude of barriers. As a CEO, Currently, I would like to bring stability and switch gears to channel our entire team's strength towards innovation of products and services. In order to do this, we need to slow down our growth rate and be able to strengthen the pillars of foundation. My question is, do you think I'm right in my thought process? If yes, and if you were the CEO of this company, what would be your strategy to align with the shareholders and get their consensus? If you think I'm wrong, what would be your best course of action to maintain the same growth rate expected and at the same time continue to address the present challenges? Thanks, Reed. Nirmal, congratulations with all the success with CRP Group and your on your various brands. This is a really great question because most often everyone thinks that what you're looking for is that unified growth rate story that's continually accelerating and growing year by year, and that's the only thing you focus on. Whereas one of the counterintuitive rules that I put in the book, Blitzscaling, was ignore your customer. It isn't obviously to say that ignoring your customer is a good thing. Actually, in fact, if you ignore your customer forever, you know, you essentially go out of business, you die. But really what it was is to ignore your current customer in favor of your scale customer. And it's this artful trade-off because sometimes you say, well, look, we have a good growth rate with these current customers, but in a year or two, that will flatten out. And actually, in fact, getting it simpler and refactoring it now, accepting a smaller growth rate right now in order to have a much longer runway to a much larger total addressable market, to a much larger margin structure and a better platform for doing other businesses, that's one of the hardest calls to make because most normally within a business, you'll have a bunch of people saying, look, this is predictable. We know it. We should continue to invest in exactly the business as it is. We shouldn't try to refactor our business. Usually 
the consensus within a business to refactor the business always comes too late because it comes when 80 to 90% of the people agree, oh, look, we've hit the wall, <laughs> right? And usually you want to do that refactoring, you know, much, much earlier than that. Usually the wise thing to do when you're a great leadership is to figure out earlier. And so you're identifying a number of different things within this combination of the food and beverage chains, you know, Upnormal, uh, Boxo, and others, together with the technology business. And those two usually have different talent bases, different product cadences. You have the advantage because you have customers who are directly feeding their work process into you with the food and beverage folks and are committed to deploying the technology. That gives you a huge advantage. But on the other hand, technology most naturally wants to distribute to all food and beverage chains. And the most natural thing is, no, no, this is our differential edge for our food and beverage chain. And so you're encountering the product development and the cost within that when you really want to be making much more of a platform. So from what you're describing, I generally do think that it's a very good question to ask, how do we simplify the platform for more scale? whether it's a platform in the technology, which is most often a concrete way of looking at this, sometimes it's a platform in your supply chain operations or a platform in terms of how do your business operations most generally work. And should you actually, in fact, make a major project of it and accept something of a growth rate hit for it? And I think the usual answer is if you have a good coherent theory on that and it works, then you should accept that lower growth rate. You need to get your investors on board. You need to articulate why you're doing this for a much bigger growth rate in the future, a much bigger TAM, a much bigger operating margin, a much more effective organization, and what challenges you're navigating around. And you have to have enough confidence that there will be people who disagree with you and your employees and your investor base that they have enough confidence in you that they're kind of willing to go along with you, even though they may have a different point of view, and that you, especially with employees, you can bring them on board. And so, you know, part of this is to always be thinking about the fact that platforms age, tech platforms age the fastest because they're constantly being rejuvenated. It's like the move to the cloud, move to mobile, move to artificial intelligence, move to data science. But that's also true for other kinds of technology platforms like logistics, you know, supply chain, you know, even brand, right, as a platform. And so thinking about how do you have a rejuvenation, a refreshing, a resimplification that enables faster trajectory in the future and a higher TAM is always a good question to be asking. I like how you push Nirmal's thinking there, Reed, away from the more narrow framing of, am I a food and beverage company or a technology company, to the broader question of, am I building technology or a technology platform? And now our final question, Reed, comes from an entrepreneur in Madrid who has the kind of company that could only exist today, but the kind of question that CEOs have been asking for a long time. How do you know when it's time to expand into new markets? Here's the question. Hey, Reed. My name is Alejandro Artacho, co-founder and CEO of Sporahome uh, here in Europe. We are an online booking platform for long-term rentals where people rent accommodation without seeing the house in person. In the last year, we went from fully centralized model with everyone in Madrid to now decentralized with nine teams across eight different countries. So my question is related to international expansion. 
should we go deeper in existing markets or expand into new markets? When do we know it's the right time uh, to keep expanding? And specifically, how should we think about international expansion as we look at both culture and growth versus margins? Thank you. Alejandro, it's great to talk to you again. It was a great pleasure to actually uh, be seated next to you at that Endeavor dinner in New York. And these are, of course, classic, great scaling questions. So usually in these kind of scale questions, it's a question of how do you build up your core engines so that those are uh, market territory that throw off economics that help you invest in other businesses, help you raise money at higher prices, and are working really well versus the need to get in other markets for competitive reasons, for building those markets to sufficient scale, because in these network businesses, part of first mover advantage is actually first learning advantage, because what you really want is first scale advantage. And first learning, as you know, gets to first scale frequently. So those are the, the framework questions that you're thinking about trading off of. So the analysis you do is, is usually on these, you say, okay, well, let's take the top X markets, three, five, two, 10, depending on how you're looking at it, and then say, okay, let's do the quick and dirty, not detailed, the quick and dirty analysis of market opportunity now, possible competition, availability of scale, availability of capital, availability of capital we think over the next two to three years, Part of that availability is the market analysis itself, which your investors help you with, but also part of it is you know, what metrics will be hitting, what will be the story of the business, how does the business look like in terms of when we say, look, as we get to a, a critical mass business in this network business, what does the business begin to look like? What will it tune to? And this is why it's really valuable and we can tune these other businesses. You know, Uber is a classic example of that because part of with Uber is like, okay, this is what a mature city looks like in one of these good tourist cities or one of these good density cities. And look, there's X more of them, so we should be investing in them. Now, generally speaking, usually if you have a good way to tune the margins, most investors are willing to take risks on is the margin characteristic 20% or 40% or 80% with a hope that they're getting to the higher thing. They want the story, the theory about how you get to the higher one, but they don't need to see those margins now, except maybe in a, a mature market if you're going for real big growth capital. And so they tend to be much more of, okay, if you show that you have margins and you can have margins and you have a theory of tuning them, most kind of blitz capital investors, most scale capital investors will be we get that that could be tuned more later, and we know that there's a playbook for that, and if you have a good theory of it, we can get there. So that tends to be more growth as a general strategy. And as part of culture, you want the culture of how do we establish the broadest possible platform? Because in network models like yours, the network effect tends to be a very Glengarry, Glen Ross market. You know, first prize Cadillac, second prize steak knives, third prize you're fired. And so the growth of we establish the network, we establish the network as platform is really key to how you play this out. Uh, I remember from our discussion at dinner that your business is looking really good. So I have full confidence that you will make these decisions the right way. Good luck. 
And with that, we've reached the end of our global strategy session. It's been fascinating. And by the way, if you found this deep dive into strategy useful, you might enjoy the podcast I host called HBS After Hours. Each week, we look at strategies and trends playing out across the world's most interesting companies. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Masters of Scale. And with that, I'll hand it back to Reed for the final word. Reed, thanks for having me on. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Young May, for your co-hosting and for your own great work supporting entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs at Harvard Business School, and particularly through your podcast, HBS After Hours. I love your show, and I think our listeners will too. Thanks also to Linda Rotenberg, Carmen Felis Tavares, and Gabrielle Wilkerson-Melnick from the Endeavor team for their partnership, and to all the founders from Endeavor who submitted their questions. If you want to learn more about Endeavor or any of these extraordinary fast-growing companies, head to Endeavor.org. And if you're a startup incubator or accelerator and you'd like to work with us on a future strategy session for your entrepreneurs, email us at hello at mastersofscale.com. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Jordan McLeod, Catherine Clark Gray, Hallie Bondi, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sapieva, Bob Safian, Christina Gonzalez, and Sarah Sandman. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.